Warning, the content of this podcast may be disturbing and graphic. It may contain explicit details, discussions of crime scenes, and descriptions that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, around 5.45 p.m. Jason Zalo, with his friend and colleague, Cohen Oatman, pulls his Range Rover around the cul-de-sac, glancing at the brown million-dollar home in Gordon Head, Victoria, British Columbia. The front windows of the magnificent home were bordered by multicolored stone neighboring a small front porch. As the headlights of the Range Rover drifted over the front of the home, a tall man with dark hair was illuminated in the doorway, but only for a second, before retreating back into the home. Jason thought, the showing must have just started. He pulled the car to the end of the cul-de-sac and waited. He sent Lindsay a quick text. The message was left unread. He waited a little longer, then picked up the phone to give her a call. She didn't answer. Beginning to worry, Jason and his friend pulled up to the home and exited the car. They made their way to the front door. Jason peered inside the window and noticed that Lindsay's shoes were still on the floor next to the front door. When he tried the knob, he was met with resistance. It was locked. While it can be normal for real estate agents to lock the door behind themselves during a showing, Jason knew that Lindsay had been nervous about this particular showing. He could hear the resounding echo of the bell from inside as he rang the doorbell, but it too went unanswered. Becoming increasingly alarmed, Jason called his mother, Shirley Zalo, who worked alongside Jason and Lindsay as a real estate agent at Remax Camison and obtained the garage code for the home. However, when he typed the numbers onto the keypad and hit pound, the garage door did not budge. At this point, Jason was starting to become desperate and wondered aloud if he should break a window. Cohen Oatman, the friend that had accompanied Jason to the home, convinced him to call police instead. The 911 call from Jason is received at 6.05 p.m. He explains to the operator that his girlfriend, 24-year-old Lindsay Buziak, had been showing a home to prospective clients and was not answering phone calls, text messages, or the doorbell. Jason tells the operator that he had followed Lindsay to the home because she had been nervous about meeting these particular clients. At this time, Cohen and Jason are making their way to the fenced-in backyard of the home. Cohen notices an open set of French doors on the back patio and points these out to Jason, 
It is unclear what Jason tells the 911 operator, but by this time, the 911 call has ended. Jason crouches down and helps lift Cohen over the fence, who then races through the backyard, through the open French doors, and into the home. Not stopping to look around, Cohen immediately heads to the front door of the home to unlock it for Jason. Jason enters through the front of the home and the two begin to look around, Cohen taking the downstairs and Jason starting upstairs. Halfway up the stairs, Jason notices a dark crimson stain on the carpet. It's the outline of a bare foot, in blood. He continues up the stairs. There was Lindsay, lying in a pool of blood near the doorway of the ensuite bathroom in the master bedroom. And she wasn't moving. Jason rushed to her side, touching her skin and feeling it for any warmth. But there was none. Again, Jason called 911. As he screamed at the operator to hurry, he pressed his hands onto Lindsay's chest, attempting life-saving CPR. But when he breathed air into her mouth, he could hear the hiss of the air he breathed in escape from her wounds. She was gone. Twenty-four-year-old Lindsay Buziak was born November 2, 1983, to father Jeff Buziak, who was a real estate agent, and mother Evelyn Reitmeyer, who was a stay-at-home mom. Despite her parents' divorce in the mid-1990s, Lindsay's childhood was mostly normal. She had a sister, Sarah, who remembers Lindsay as supportive. Lindsay was described as happy, smart, and social, but shy. Lindsay's mother would say that she had an early interest in fashion and picked up her first job at a clothing store in the mall so that she could fund her shopping habit. Lindsay became interested in real estate and began taking courses at the UBC Sauter School of Business. There, she met Jason Zalo in a real estate math tutoring program where, Jason says, they just clicked. However, nothing became of this early connection just yet, as Lindsay had been dating Matt McDuff during this time and had been for a few years. Lindsay received her real estate license in 2006 and began working for a firm selling townhomes in Victoria. Everybody knows everybody in the real estate business and Lindsay would cross paths with Jason Zalo again. Lindsay's relationship with Matt was beginning to fall apart. The natural connection she had had with Jason in their tutoring class began to blossom, turning into a full-blown relationship shortly after. Lindsay would move with Jason into the basement of the Zalo's lake house for the summer. She then left her current real estate firm to work with Jason, his mother Shirley, and his brother Ryan at Remax Camison. By most accounts, Lindsay and Jason were flourishing in their relationship and in their business. However, Lindsay's father would claim that she, 
at one point during a visit with him in 2007, discussed Jason's lack of ambition. Lindsay's friend would also claim that she hadn't been happy and, at one point, even considered breaking off the relationship. While Jason admitted that they had had struggles, just like any other couple, he claims that there were no signs of an impending breakup. They were happy. On Friday, February 1st, 2008, Lindsay felt the vibration of her phone as it rang in her pocket. An unfamiliar number with a 788 area code flashed on the screen. This was the area code for the Metro Vancouver area, which is on the mainland across from Victoria, just a 90-minute ferry ride away from where Lindsay lived. She swiped to answer and pressed the phone to her ear. She and the caller brushed through the formalities, and then the woman on the other end of the line got right to the point. In a broken, foreign, Spanish-sounding accent, the caller explained that she and her husband were being transferred to Victoria and needed to buy a home. As the caller spoke, Lindsay jotted down notes in her day planner. The woman needed to buy within two days and had very specific requests. The home must be new, with three bedrooms, three bathrooms. It must have a separate area for the housekeeper. And the budget? One million dollars. This piqued Lindsay's interest. She was a newer, less experienced real estate agent. How did this woman choose her, of all people, to be the one to help find this home? The caller explained that a friend of her husband's had referred her to Lindsay. Lindsay jotted down 5.30 and circled it in her planner. She saved the woman's number in her phone as million dollar. While she was excited at the prospect of selling a million dollar home, deep down, Lindsay had a strange feeling about the unusual call. Jason's mother had been on her way to the condo and entered to hear the tail end of the conversation. Shirley had had plans to eat out with Lindsay that evening while Jason was away playing hockey as he often did. So the two left the condo and walked to get some sushi. At dinner, the two discussed the phone call and Lindsay's plan for showing homes to the couple. Shirley was aware that Lindsay had been invited to a bachelorette party the following evening, the same evening she was to show houses, and knew that Lindsay might have to miss out on the party. Thinking that she might regret not going to the bachelorette party, Shirley offered to show the homes for her. But Lindsay insisted that she was excited for the opportunity, although she was somewhat apprehensive. The two wrapped up their evening out and Lindsay returned to the condo. She was still awake when Jason arrived home around midnight. He also knew that Lindsay had a bachelorette party to go to the next evening so he, too, offered to show the homes for her. She declined his offer. She was determined to do this on her own. Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, the day she was to meet the couple. 
The phone rang at the condo and Jason picked up. He heard the woman with the broken accent ask for Lindsay. Lindsay wasn't home, he told her, but he offered to give the caller Lindsay's cell number. That won't be necessary, she said, because she already had it. Lindsay was at the Remax office that afternoon, her anxieties about the big selling opportunity growing. She nervously asked the receptionists to search the million-dollar phone number and the caller's name in their database. The search brought up nothing. No related real estate transactions could be found. Overhearing this discussion, Lindsay's colleague, a former RCMP officer, offered to accompany her to the showing. But Lindsay was confident because Jason would be meeting her there. At 3 p.m., Jason and Lindsay met for a late lunch where Lindsay showed him a list of the homes she planned to show the couple. After lunch, it was assumed that Lindsay headed home to change. She was likely planning to attend that bachelorette party after the showing and needed to be ready for both occasions. She then made her way to 1702 D'Souza Place. At the same time, Jason headed to a meeting at a nearby auto shop. The surveillance video from this meeting would later be used to corroborate Jason's alibi. He received a few phone calls from his hockey teammate and work colleague, Cohen Oatman, who he was planning to share a few beers with later that evening. Cohen met Jason at the auto shop and the two got into Jason's Range Rover. The home at 1702 D'Souza Place was so new that when Jason typed the address into GPS, it didn't show up. He called Lindsay to ask for the address, but their call was interrupted by the arrival of her prospective clients. Jason quickly asked Lindsay to text him the directions to the home, and their call ended. Lindsay shook the hands of the tall man with dark hair and a long light-colored jacket and the woman with short blonde hair and a uniquely colored black dress that had white and red swirling panels. She unlocked the door to 1702 D'Souza Place, took off her shoes by the front door, and the couple did the same. She highlighted the home's qualities the ones the caller had described in the phone call. As Lindsay climbed the stairs, the couple followed closely behind. She entered the master bedroom and began to lead them into the ensuite bathroom when she was surprised by a sharp blow and stinging pain in her back. She turned around, but didn't even have time to register the pain before she felt another sharp blow. Lindsay was being stabbed repeatedly by one or maybe both, of the clients she had brought into the home. As Lindsay fell to the ground, her phone would pocket dial the number of a contact she was not often in touch with. The recipient of the phone call would later show police the muffled voicemail they had received at 5.41 p.m. As Lindsay lay dying, 
the couple rushed down the stairs, grabbed their shoes from beside the front door, and nearly exited through the front of the home. This is when, police believe, Jason had pulled up to the home, illuminated the man with his headlights, and assumed that the showing was just getting started. The suspect immediately retreated back into the home with his accomplice, and the two were believed to have exited out of the back of the house and over the fence. As they were the ones who found Lindsay, Jason and Cohen were immediately taken to police headquarters for questioning. Police were able to corroborate Jason's timeline using that surveillance video from the auto shop. He also passed a polygraph and handed his phone and a laptop to investigators to be examined. On the computer, police found that several files in a folder that was labeled received files had been previously deleted. Investigators swept through social media pages and found that messages from Lindsay's Facebook between January 24th and February 3rd, the day after the murder, had all been erased. Now, only the owner of the Facebook account or someone logged in as the owner could have deleted those messages. Police are currently unsure of the significance of the deleted files and messages. At one point, police had a theory that Lindsay Buziak had been misidentified as someone involved in a large drug operation. She had been in contact on Facebook with the family member of someone who was involved in the drug ring that had been busted in Calgary only a few weeks after Lindsay had been there visiting her father. Lindsay had even called this person at one point, but police were unable to determine the reason for this phone call. No other information has been found related to the drug theory, and Lindsay was not known to have ever been involved with drugs. It was even said that when Lindsay met Jason, she was thrilled that he wasn't interested in that kind of lifestyle. Investigators looked into the strange phone number that was used to call Lindsay. It had been a prepaid phone and was activated online under the name Paolo Rodriguez, which is believed to be a fake name. The phone was found to have ended up in Victoria the night before the murder where it pinged off a cell tower downtown. Based on eyewitness reports, police released a sketch of the female suspect. She is believed to have been between the ages of 35 and 45 years old. In the profile sketch, the woman is depicted with a short, blunt bob haircut. Her nose is long and sloping, and she has a rounded, large chin. Her eyebrows are narrow and downward turned. They also release a sketch of the unique dress she had been wearing. It was a business casual style dress, black, with a white, wavy, vertical panel bordered on each side by red in a matching pattern. Police have never disclosed whether or not a murder weapon was found and nobody has ever been charged in the murder of Lindsay Buziak. It's a controversial case on the internet. Her father, Jeff, 
created a website to spread information about the murder, but many of his claims have been refuted by people involved in the case. So much so that in 2022, Shirley Buziak sued Jeff for defamation because of his claims that she had murdered Lindsay. Her case has yet to be heard in court. There have been many podcasts, TV shows, TikTok and YouTube videos, and other entertainment media created to tell Lindsay's story. You may have heard some of them. You may notice that the information in Manner of Death is a little different than the information you've heard before. That is because most of the information in this episode came from the Capital Daily, a credible reporting company based in Victoria that obtained the case files and over 200 interviews related to the case of Lindsay Buziak. Which would you believe? The unsolved murder of Lindsay Buziak remains a haunting and perplexing mystery. Despite the best efforts of law enforcement, some questions surrounding the brutal slaying have yet to be answered. The loss of Lindsay is felt every day by Lindsay's mother, father, and sister, and by Jason, who would say that he thinks of that day all the time and often wonders if he had been there just 10 minutes earlier, would she still be alive? <laughs>